Hello and welcome to Psychology in Seattle. I'm your host, Kirk Honda, licensed therapist. You can go to our brand new shiny website located at psychologyinseattle.com. It would be particularly cool if you went to our support us page and followed the steps to support us, to show us that you love us. That would be great. You can also email us at contact at psychologyinseattle.com. It's just me today. I thought I would review a movie that came out in 2007 called Charlie Bartlett. The reason why I thought I would review this movie and talk about it a little bit is because it is about a rich kid who becomes a self-appointed psychiatrist to the student body of his new high school. So I remember seeing previews for this movie and thinking that it looked interesting and it applies to psychology. So I thought I would talk about it here. So let's get into it, shall we? All right, so Charlie Bartlett. It is a teen comedy with a little drama. It's sort of in the style of Ferris Bueller, but it's not as good of a movie as Ferris Bueller. It starts out with Charlie Bartlett, a teenager, being kicked out of his Ivy League-style private high school, a prep school. Um, We learn that he's been kicked out of a number of them. And we also learn that he has a very rich mother who is eccentric. And we also learn that his father is not around. We learn later that it's because he's in prison. So it's just him and his mom. And we learn that his mother has very loose rules for Charlie, but that they have a very warm relationship. So it seems as though Charlie is without any real sort of authority in his life. He doesn't have any kind of guidance or parenting. And it seems like that that may have been true throughout his life. So he gets kicked out of this prep school and he goes to this public high school and is instantly bullied and ridiculed for his upper class ways. For instance, he walks into the school with his prep school blazer and his, you know, crest on his uh, lapel or on his chest and he gets beat up and the bully, the class bully shoves his face into a toilet, that sort of thing. So he comes back home with a black eye from being beat up by the bully and his mother sees it and puts him in psychoanalysis. So there he is on the couch in psychoanalysis, and he's telling the therapist that he's being picked on at school. And he says, I have a fantasy that Charlie says, I have a, I have a fantasy. The psychoanalyst says, sexual, in this really creepy way. And um, Charlie Bartlett says, no, it's not sexual. And he tells about his fantasy that he becomes popular and this sort of thing. And the doctor's taking notes and not really being very empathetic. And he doesn't value what Charlie is saying. And after he's done telling about this this very meaningful fantasy uh, of Charlie's, the psychoanalyst just changes the subject and asks about his father. And Charlie feels very defeated. And then the psychoanalyst prescribes Ritalin. So we learn that he's a psychiatrist as well. This is yet another inaccurate example of therapy portrayed in the movies. The therapist completely fails to be empathetic. It's a typical cartoonish version of a therapist. The therapist looks for sexuality and everything in a very creepy way. And he prescribes medication recklessly. This was the first sign in the movie that I saw that pointed to the conclusion that the writer is out of touch, that the director and the producers of this this movie are completely out of touch. Although I did find out that the writer wrote Youth in Revolt, which I love dearly. So I couldn't really, I couldn't really figure that one out. So Charlie Bartlett starts taking Ritalin and he becomes very hyperactive instantly. 
and he becomes very focused on his homework and he can't focus on his mother talking to him because he's so focused on his homework. And then he starts acting strange, stranger and stranger. He starts running around for no reason. He's extremely hyperactive. He's completely out of control. He's running naked in the streets in the middle of the night. Which, again, is another sign that the makers of this movie are out of touch, that they would portray Ritalin in this really cartoonish way. There are a lot of kids taking Ritalin today, and to just make fun of this drug that people need for good reasons is insensitive and just odd. In 2007, there were a lot of kids taking Ritalin. I don't know. Maybe maybe the move. Maybe the filmmakers had a bone to pick about Ritalin. I don't know. It, it didn't seem it that way, though. Honestly, uh, it it seemed as though the writers were actually pro medication by the end of the movie. But I don't know. This scene in the movie where Charlie Bartlett freaks out on Ritalin has become a cultural meme in our society. On Urban Dictionary, there's a entry that is called Charlie Bartletting. It is a term that is used to refer to the action of spazzing out while on any drug, specifically Ritalin, as in the sentence, Dude, how much Ritalin did you take? You're like, totes Charlie Bartletting. So this movie and its freak out Ritalin scene has become so prevalent in our culture that it has become a verb. Is that a verb to to Charlie Bartlett? Yeah, that's it's become a verb. And just in case you're wondering on Urban Dictionary, the Charlie Bartletting entry has 26 up thumbs and only 12 down thumbs. So most people approve of this definition and this usage. Um, so anyway, he starts acting really strange while he's taking Ritalin, again, running in the streets naked. So after he realizes that the consequences of abusing Ritalin are severe, he stops taking it. And instead, he starts to sell Ritalin at school. There's a lot of weird messages that this movie is giving to kids and to people. I'm, I'm, I'm unsure as to what the morality or what message they're trying. Maybe there is no message, which is fine. But if you look at the morality that drives the hero, it... It's a little concerning. So Charlie Bartlett gets this gets the bully that beat him up, the one that gave him the black eye, the one that stuck his head in the toilet. He gets this bully to help him sell it, and they become best friends instantly. And again, another interesting message that the writer is trying to get across, like one, one way to be accepted and liked is to sell drugs and team up with the class bully, the class criminal, and sell drugs with him, and that's how you're going to get popular. In the movie, when Charlie Bartlett starts talking about Ritalin with people, they indicate they've never heard of Ritalin. Not, they didn't know the ins and outs of Ritalin. They, they've never heard of it. They've never seen it before. This is 2007. When I saw that movie, I was like, what? <laughs> so again, another sign that the writer is out of touch. So they sell all 90 pills at the high school dance, and all the kids start acting like they're on ecstasy, not Ritalin, which is another sign that the movie makers are out of touch. The kids are going crazy at this dance. They're jumping up and down. They're ripping their clothes off. They're running naked through the hallways, and it's ridiculous. So upon selling the Ritalin at the dance, making everyone have a great time at the dance, suddenly Charlie is the most popular kid at school just because of that. So Charlie gives... 90 pills to this class bully who then sells all the pills to all the kids in the dance. And the next day, Charlie Bartlett is the most popular kid in the school. I don't know if they were trying to make a movie that was like Ferris Bueller because you never really knew why everyone loved Ferris Bueller in the movie Ferris Bueller, at least when I saw it 
two decades ago. I could never really figure out why everyone loved Ferris Bueller. They just did. And so maybe they're trying to make a movie like that. I don't know. So a troubled classmate of Charlie's comes to him and asks him at this point, he's like, is it true that you can get a hold of medication? Uh, because I'm totally depressed and I'm, I'm having trouble breathing in class, like I'm having a heart attack. And the kid says to Charlie, I can't go to my parents about it because they already think I'm a freak. So this is actually a situation that is realistic that I could see happening in a high school where a misunderstood, isolated, alienated kid reaches out to someone and says, I'm very depressed, I'm having trouble breathing in class, and I'm ashamed, and I, I feel like I can't go to my parents because I don't feel like they're very supportive. This, you know, this was a realistic situation. So Charlie looks up the symptoms in the DSM, and he goes to his doctor, his psychoanalyst, and Charlie fakes that he has these symptoms so that the doctor will prescribe medications to Charlie, and so Charlie can pass those medications along to this alienated kid. Now, this is actually something that is accurate that happens in the world. People, including teenagers, will fake symptoms, will look up how to fake symptoms. Um, it's you know fairly easy. And they will go to doctors to get medications from them so that they can sell the medications or abuse them. Now, I would imagine that a lot of medication prescribers are competent at detecting such fakery, but it's, you know, it's something that I definitely hear about. So then Charlie Bartlett goes to the kid, the kid who feels alienated and who is depressed and anxious, and he tells the kid that no one has died from panic attacks. He diagnoses the kid with panic attacks and anxiety, and he says, don't worry about these episodes. You're, you'll be okay. You'll, you'll have the panic, and then you'll feel fine in 15 minutes, and then he gives the kid Zoloft and Xanax. And actually, this is probably a good treatment plan for this person who is experiencing anxiety. You tell them to cognitively try to combat the anxiety by reminding themselves that they're okay, that it's not a comfortable feeling, this panic feeling, but you're not going to die from it and that it won't last forever. Panic attacks are perpetuated and exacerbated greatly by the common notion that people have that they're about to go crazy or they're going to die because they'll have a physiological feeling that they perceive as as something bad is happening to them. If anyone's had a panic attack out there, you know what I'm talking about. And they think that they're going to have a heart attack. They think that they're going to go crazy. They think that they're going to pass out. They think that they're going to throw up. Or they think, they think various things, which are rational thoughts, honestly, without any other information. So, so now they're worried about some unrealistic result of what is happening to them. You know, imagine you're driving your car and suddenly you have five of the 10 signs of a heart attack and you've never had those feelings before. And you just saw a presentation on the 10 signs of, of heart attack. Well, it, you'd, be, you'd get scared, right? You're thinking, wow, I am I about to die? So the physiological feeling that happened to you is a bit of a mystery, but now your brain runs with it and thinks, oh my God, I'm about to die. Now, those signs might actually be signs of a heart attack, but for some people, it's the sign of a panic attack. And if they knew it was a panic attack and not a heart attack, then they would say, okay, I'm just going to ride this out. I'll deep breathe. I'll tell myself everything's going to be okay. And the physiological symptoms and the fear and the anxiety will decrease over time quickly. 
But if you have these physiological feelings and then you believe that you're about to die, then your anxiety and the physiological reaction increase greatly. So not only are you very afraid, naturally, but your heart starts beating faster and the pain in your arm gets more pronounced and that kind of thing. And then after the episode, people think that they managed to stave off whatever it was that was going to kill them. They think, okay, I somehow I got through that one alive. And then the next day they wake up in the morning and they're thinking, what if this happens again? Uh, that was such a horrible feeling. I really don't want it to happen again. And then they're driving in their car on the same road. And suddenly they think, what if it happens on this road again? What if it has something to do with driving a car or something to do with this road? I mean, people can be sort of irrational sometimes. And I, again, I understand it because the brain isn't always rational, doesn't, isn't always help us in this respect. And then they have another panic attack just because the conditions were the same as their first panic attack. And this just gets worse and worse and worse for people. And one of the best treatments that you can provide people that are having this experience is to tell them as long as you have properly diagnosed them as having a panic attack and not an actual physiological condition, one of the th best things you can do for these people is just to tell them simply that it's not something to be afraid of, that it's a feeling and it's real and it feels like anxiety and it feels like you're going to die and it feels like there's a doom that you can't name and it feels like you might go crazy, but in fact that won't happen. And if they can really believe that and just telling them one time is not likely to convince them, but if they learn enough and if they can internalize this idea enough, the next time they have those physiological feelings, they can tell themselves, I'm going to be okay and I'm, I'm going to be okay. And for those people that can really believe that, their panic attacks will reduce and sometimes never return. So it's a very powerful thing, the mind, and it's a very powerful thing to be able to help someone with this, with the simple message that the panic is not going to kill them. But anyway, so so Charlie Bartlett does this sort of treatment to this alienated kid and also gives him Zoloft and Xanax, which are common medications for anxiety. He also starts to provide talk therapy counseling for people in the bathroom, in the boys' bathroom. He sits in one stall while the kid sits in another stall and they, they talk through the wall, the barrier between the two toilets in a similar way that a priest would talk to one of their parishioners. And Charlie provides a lot of quality counseling. He does a lot of normalizing. He tells people that, look, the thing that you're worried about, it's actually quite normal and you should let yourself off the hook. He also does a lot of self-esteem building. He's, he finds ways of helping them to feel good about themselves. So this was actually, I thought, a good representation of what counseling can look like. But again, it's not done by this psychoanalyst. It's done by this high school kid who's never been to school. So, so then more kids start coming to him and more kids need different medications. So he starts going to other doctors to fake other symptoms and get other medications. And pretty soon he's supplying the entire school, it seems, with medication and talk therapy from the boys' bathroom. And then at one moment, he says to his psychoanalyst, he says, and I, th I thought it was an interesting comment on American culture. He says, bringing psychiatric drugs and teenagers together is like opening a lemonade stand in the desert. So again, I just thought this was a, this was an interesting comment on our American culture that we don't often talk about. A lot of teenagers are medicated, and I'm guessing that some of them it is for the better, and some of them it is not. 
and I think in our culture, we tend to overlook the downside of prescribing medication to children. But on the other hand, I've seen a lot of parents who have children who could benefit from medication be very resistant to taking medication just on the notion that it's somehow evil or destructive to give a child a medication. And, and there's various medications with various different side, side effects. I think people often just think of psychiatric medications as all the same, and they're really not. They're, they're quite varied. Some can be highly affecting to someone and have a lot of side, side effects, while another medication can have you know, minimal to no side effects. But I just think as a culture right now, we are fairly childish when it comes to our understanding and our reactions to medicating children and adults for that matter. I mean, there are people in our culture that will say that medicate, all medications are useless. And I just find that, and, and that they say that with a lot of confidence. And they say that psychiatry is a joke, that psychiatry is a, a massive conspiracy manipulation. Now, I'm, I'm sort of talking about people, you know, way over on one side of the spectrum. But, but there are a lot of people that are close to that, that see psychiatry as some sort of nefarious practice. And of course, there are nefarious practices that occur within psychiatry, for sure. But to say an entire field of medicine is somehow nefarious is, is strange. So it, our culture in general just has a very childish understanding of what medications are and what they do. Even clinicians, I find, sometimes have a difficult time really understanding what medications are, what pathology is, how to help people holistically. These are very complicated things, and I'm imagining in 50 years, 100 years, they're going to look back at our culture and our practices, and they're really going to laugh at us, um, among other things that they're going to laugh at us about. But anyway... So at one point, his girlfriend actually comes to him for counseling, and she complains about her parents, and Charlie relates to it and gets sad, and his girlfriend, the client, so to speak, doesn't notice that he is getting sad about it, because she's talking about her parents, and you can see in his face that he's thinking about his father, but she doesn't notice, and she feels better for getting her complaints off of her chest for venting about her parents. But we see that he secretly feels worse after this session, which I found to be a good depiction of countertransference of what it feels like to be a therapist and to, quote unquote, soak up our client's issues and to have to remain strong. And then after the session, who do we talk to? Who do we vent to? Um, when clients talk about things, very intense things that are reminiscent of our own issues, of our own vulnerabilities, who do therapists go to, to to vent? And how many therapists have someone that they can go to to vent? Therapists should be in therapy, one. Two, they should have consultants and other therapists that they can talk to. They should have a good support system, all of these things. A lot of therapists don't. And I don't know. I just thought it was an interesting little depiction of, of a common experience for therapists. So then Charlie Bartlett gets in trouble for prescribing the psychiatric drugs in the boys' bathroom. So he stops. But people still want talk therapy with him. So they line up outside the bathroom. Even though there aren't any drugs to give out, they still want counseling with Charlie Bartlett, which, which validates Charlie's worth as a therapist. So Charlie offers non-judgmental support, and he tries to improve other people's relationships. And 
from my estimation, he's providing good counseling. Um, it comes across as very pragmatic and very down to earth. And this was a better representation of what actually happens in the therapy office. But again, it's done by a high school student and not the actual you know, therapist. So later on in the movie, he gets up on the stage in this pivotal moment in the story. And he says to all the other kids, he says, do you think I'm any less screwed up than you? He, he tells the crowd, you, j- you need to stop listening to me. I- I'm just as screwed up as you. So as with the rest of this movie, this was a very cheesy moment. This movie was very cheesy, honestly. But I thought it was an interesting comment on how us therapists are just as screwed up as everyone else, quote unquote. We have problems. That doesn't mean we can't help, but it does mean that we're human and we make mistakes and that we need support. Therapists and our culture put unrealistic expectations on therapists. And, and these unrealistic expectations can often lead to a therapist not recognizing their mounting stress from their work. They think, I'm a professional. I'll, I'll be okay. Or they'll think, my clients need me. I don't have time to take care of myself. I, I see this all the time. I've seen many therapists and students push themselves way beyond reasonable limits, and they fall apart, which is tragic because they're trying to help, and they end up taking on too much of the stress, and they fall apart. And usually this is based on the premise that therapists are invulnerable. People have this image of doctors, of therapists, police officers, uh, firemen, these people who rush into the difficulties that that go to people when they're having trouble. People have a view of these people as, well, they're professionals. They, they, they know what they're doing. You know, this is all normal to them. Well, it's not normal to anyone and it does affect them. And professionals that see tragedy, that hear tragic stories, that hear painful stories, these people experience vicarious trauma. They are themselves traumatized in a sense and can become quite significantly traumatized if they don't take care of themselves and they're exposed to a tremendous amount of this pain, of this human suffering. So Charlie Bartlett's uh, comment about being screwed up as everyone else I thought was indicative of what it's like to be a therapist. And then at the end of the movie, we see Charlie Bartlett applying for a summer internship at a psychiatric institute presumably because he has an interest in becoming a psychiatrist. So there we go. All right. So again, this movie was very cheesy. It was written by the same writer who wrote Youth and Revolt, which is a wonderful movie, but this was not a good movie. And if you are a therapist, it's probably worth seeing just because I think therapists should see all movies about therapy, you know, Prince of Tides, Mumford, you should watch The Sopranos, you know, that kind of thing. Because it's it's just interesting to see depictions of therapy, even when they're horribly represented. At the very least, when you're watching this with your friends and family or with strangers, just turn to them and say, by the way, that's not an accurate depiction of what therapy looks like. Uh, just so you know, we're not like that. You know, do your part. Spread the word that therapists are not all bumbling idiots. Um, some of them are, but but not all of us, right? All right, so that does it for another episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me, and please take care of yourself. 